An employment tribunal in the United States is set to rule on whether the city of New York should pay for commercial surrogacy to allow same-sex couples to have children. Corey Briskin worked for the city as a lawyer. He says his former employer discriminated against him and his husband by denying them fertility benefits that are available to straight couples and single women or gay women. The case has reopened a debate about the ethical minefield that is surrogacy. Dr Charles Camosi is a leading ethicist and professor of medical humanities at Crichton University. Well, let me preface my answer by saying that in my own life as an adoptive father and the father of a four-year-old in the other room right now who's a surprised biological child, you know, I know firsthand the pain of infertility. Thinking my wife and I thought we were infertile for, for many years. And so it's certainly an understandable position to be in to say, I, I would like a biological child or I'd like a child via in vitro fertilization and surrogacy. But the reason why it's controversial, well, there are so many reasons, frankly, why it's controversial. But ultimately, it comes down to whether we get to use other people as a means to our end of having a child, whether we think it's a right, in fact, to have a child. And whatever that would mean in this context means being able to get the sperm and ova of other people and in many cases being able to use the body of a woman, right, to have a child. And those obviously are very controversial claims from all different levels of our political discourse. Yeah, this uh, case also, I think, has an added dimension in the sense that uh, one of the couple is suing his former employer, the city of New York, because he wants the insurer to pay for the surrogacy. That kind of means taxpayer-funded commercial surrogacy, doesn't it? Yeah, so it depends on the context. It depends on who you're talking to. It depends especially in the U.S. on what state and polity and locality you're dealing with. But in states like New York and cities like New York and states like California, there's very serious talk about a so-called right to procreate, in which case we would be talking about either the state, the government, or the government mandating this being covered by private insurance. And so obviously that adds a whole nother dimension, right? If it's taxpayers paying for couples to have this, then boy, we're really talking about rights in a way that we've never seen before. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of the really strong ethical problems that arise with surrogacy. I mean, you're a professor of medical ethics. I just want to take one of the major ones, and that is the question of poor women. What do we know about the nature of women who volunteer to become surrogates, even if they do receive money? Especially on the left, but not only on the left, we get a lot of discussion about structural violence, structural coercion, especially for economically vulnerable populations, right? So for instance, when we talk about so-called sex work and those who are feel like they have no shot at earning income except through this very coercive dehumanizing process. And something similar is going on here. It's almost universally economically vulnerable women both in the United States and I guess via what sometimes is referred to as a kind of surrogate tourism where you go and use a body from a woman in some other developing country for even lower costs. 
the kind of structural coercion that's present, it's really not complicated to think about why that's the case, right? If you pay them even a reasonable amount of money for what is essentially gestating another person's child for nine months, and you're economically vulnerable, you can see, you can just kind of do the math on that and see how that plays out. But for any of us who are <laughs> concerned about how the markets and especially capitalism manipulate women in such economically vulnerable circumstances, there are just a million red flags to raise. Is there also an issue about separating biological motherhood from so-called gestational motherhood, birth motherhood? Oh, yeah, this happens all the time. In fact, I give my medical ethics students cases which put this in stark relief. So, for instance, you'll have cases where the so-called parents who are paying the surrogate to have the child will even try to build into the contract the idea that she would have an abortion when they would want her to. So, for instance, if the child ends up having Down syndrome, this is a case that has happened more than once where the child does have Down syndrome and the parents who are paying their surrogate want her to have an abortion and she doesn't want to have the abortion in part because she's so intimately connected to this child. And I have to tell you, we're learning more and more about the dramatic biological interface between the mother and her prenatal human child inside of her. In fact, we now know that they exchange cellular material and that each other's cells end up in their bodies for almost their entire lives. You can imagine a mother who's spending months and months being physically attached to this child, exchanging cellular material, blood and other kinds of material saying, I, I am this child's mother in a very real way. I am this child's mother. And that obviously ends up, can end up in having very, very complicated, both moral and legal problems. You've spoken about some of the really confronting ethical problems with regard to surrogacy, whether it's a male-female couple or a same-sex couple. In this particular case in New York, there's an added element of controversy, certainly in some of the responses, because the couple have said, this will be a motherless family. Pretty out front about that. I mean, what sort of issues does that raise? Let me just be as clear as I can that, as you said, I've, I've spoken out about this in every context. Basically, it does come down to whether we really prioritize the child here or whether we prioritize the folks who are on the marketplace trying to get what they want via a market process. If we prioritize the child, then doesn't it seem very strange, in fact, to say that we would talk about a motherless family as a good thing? Maybe we need to start with the child first and say, what do we owe children, rather than talking about the right to procreate? This is a fundamental distinction that I think we need to make in this whole discussion is, again, the, the pain of infertility is real. I've lived it myself. I don't mean to downplay that one bit. But there is no right to a child. There is no right to have a child. That's a gift. But if we're going to put our focus anywhere, I think it needs to be in terms of rights. I think it needs to be on the rights of children. What are children owed in terms of the kind of families that we want to steer them towards? Mm. Aren't there some international conventions that suggest that a child has, if not explicitly, a right to a mother and a father, has some sort of right to the knowledge of his or her biological heritage? That's right. As an adoptive father myself, I've thought a lot about this question and been heavily involved in a lot of discussions around these questions and done a lot of research around these questions. And along a wide range of points of view, liberal, conservative, and everything else in between, there is this sense that biology matters, that your 
connection to your biological mother and father matters and that children should have an ability to, if possible, find out who their biological mother or father is, or in a case like this, perhaps their biological mother and father and perhaps their gestational mother who, again, carried them inside their own body for nine months, whose cellular material is in their own body and their own cellular material is in their mother's body. It's another concern here, but but if all you think of it, again, is as this market transaction with people who have money or resources or, again, their insurance or their the government is going to pay for it, they can just buy the child essentially on an open market, then it makes very little sense to talk about that. But if we think of it as something more than that, right, if we think of it as something, again, where we need to talk about the rights of the child, which would be different than a pencil or a television or a computer, right, which you buy on the open market, then you have to ask a very different set of questions. Hmm. I believe there have been some, let us say, unexpected dissenters in this debate. Who have they been? Unexpected if you haven't really dove into it the way we have over the last few minutes. But given the conversation we just had, you might expect that feminists and people who prioritize the rights of women, especially economically vulnerable women, have lots of questions to ask about this, especially if, you know, the right of so-called right of a couple to have a child in the situation implies the right to use a woman's body as a surrogate. That sets off alarm bells for anybody that wants to prioritize women and especially, again, economically vulnerable women. So it's no surprise to see feminist groups and also whole countries criminalize economics and surrogacy on the open market given the exploitative uh, impact it has on poor women, especially. Yeah. How do we get round, though, this point that often comes up where you'll find cases where the surrogate woman says, look, I'm not poor. I'm doing this out of love for another couple. They can have pretty powerful testimony, too, occasionally. Yeah, that's a good counter argument to raise. It, it is not always the case that it's an economically vulnerable person. Let me respond to that in two ways. The first way is to say, we go back to the question of the rights of the child and you know how many parents do we think a child should have, right? And in the case of the situation where um, two parents have no gametes involved, they're just the parents who are kind of taking the child into their life and they're the donors of the sperm, the donors of the egg and the surrogate child, and you have five parents. Is it a good idea for any child, if you if you think of the rights of a child to have five parents? And that's the kind of questions we've been talking about. But then you have the structural problem here, too, saying, what should our policy be in light of having a preferential option for the most vulnerable, especially the most economically vulnerable? You could say that you know whatever small percentage, smaller percentage it is of folks who aren't economically vulnerable, but the overwhelming majority of uh, surrogate parents are economically vulnerable. And so if we're we're thinking at the level of structures and systems and policies, even international policies, then that that has to be kept in the front of mind. And, And the exceptions are the ones that prove the rule. Medical ethicist, Professor Charles Camosi. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.